Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, we're continuing our multi-episode Climate Hits Home series on how changing climate conditions are impacting communities in the United States. This episode's topic is water availability and drought, and our place-based focus is on Phoenix, Arizona, a city situated in a very arid region of the country with a high population growth rate and considerable concerns over water stress. I'm very pleased to welcome Katherine Sorensen to the show to discuss this important subject. Katherine is Director of Research and Professor of Practice at the Morrison Institute for Public Policy at Arizona State University. And for a number of years, she served as Director of Phoenix Water Services. I can't think of a better person to share insights on how Phoenix has been preparing for uncertainty around water availability for years. And I'll offer a spoiler alert. This is not a doom and gloom story. In fact, there have been some notable successes in Phoenix that may well offer lessons for other jurisdictions. Stay with us. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining me today on Resources Radio and for being our second guest in our Climate Hits Home series. Thank you. It's, it's really great to be included. I'm really excited for our conversation. Great. Um, well, uh, we always like to start with a get to know you question for our guests. Uh, so let's hear a little bit about your background and perhaps how you ended up working on water issues in the desert Southwest. <laughs> right. So I, I'm actually from here. I'm, I'm from Tempe, Arizona. And when I was a senior at McClintock High School, I took a course in economics and knew from that moment on that I would be an economist. And of course, growing up here in the desert Southwest, um, you just inherently understand that water is our most important resource. And economics, of course, is the study of the allocation of scarce resources, or as I like to say, who gets what. So uh, it was very natural for me to combine economics and, and water resources I studied it as an undergraduate and did my dissertation in it as well. So I, I'm a lifer. Yes, you are. And it's funny that you talk about kind of that initial reaction to economics. It seems to me like a number of economists I know, <laughs> it really is a calling. You know, they sort of find this passion for economics early on. So, um, And how did you end up translating then to actually becoming in the kind of public service aspect, the director of Phoenix Water Services? Yeah, so um, I finished my PhD, but I knew that I wanted to do more applied work. And so I actually ended up in um, public service because cities here in the Phoenix area all have water managers. And in that role, your job really is to um, develop, protect, defend, you know, the city's water resources. And so I started my career in, in that vein and, and eventually uh, moved on to operations and eventually to running the utilities. Um, but boy, I, I tell you, it, it's, it's been a joy. I'm absolutely thrilled to have had those experiences. That's fantastic. Um, well, as I mentioned, this is a series that's about both climate impacts and how those impacts play out in specific places. But let me start with the broader side of that, um, with this broad question of what do we actually know about the impact between warming temperatures, climate change, and drought? Um, what's, what is the link there? You know, it, that is a broad question. Um, I, I can tell you what the scientists say about the Colorado River Basin in particular. And for context, all of Arizona um, is within the Colorado River Basin. So that's, that's kind of our basin, is what I would say. And it's not good news. Uh, the scientists are telling us that um, climate change is 
baking our climate, um, that the flows of the Colorado River will diminish by as much as 25 or 30 percent in the future. And, you know, that's a, a real problem because the Colorado River is already over allocated. So when you take an over allocated river system and then expose it to that kind of a stress, um, you can imagine that there are real challenges and real concerns associated with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I must admit, um, you know, Phoenix, the desert Southwest came to mind when we were thinking about water availability and water stress. But I, I ha- actually had to sort of check myself and ask, is this really something that am I, am I thinking that it's more of a problem there simply because I'm thinking of a desert or is it in fact kind of particularly problematic there? It sounds like you've answered that a little bit with concerns about the Colorado River Basin, but anything else particular to Arizona, to Phoenix um, and its susceptibility? You know, it's it's interesting you state it that way, because I, I think a lot of people um, fail to understand that Phoenix was actually very carefully chosen. Um, Phoenix was carefully chosen by ancient Native Americans who um, had a vast agricultural uh, civilization here. Uh, Phoenix is where the flows of the Salt, Verde, and Gila Rivers all come together, So although we're in the middle of a desert, Phoenix actually is where the state's main rivers come together. And and for that reason was was chosen. There's more water here than you might think. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's going to be the title of our episode. Hmm, hmm. Interesting. (laughs) I'm always picking titles for episodes mid-episode, but I like that one. There's more water here than you think. But it sounds like even though um, there's more water there than you think, there are some challenges that lie ahead. And, uh, And I wanted to ask about one thing that we think about a lot at RFF when it comes to climate impacts is the distribution of those impacts. And in particular, in this case, I I wanted to ask you about the distribution of kind of water availability or any kind of future drought related challenges. Um, It's, it often seems like climate impacts like those will disproportionately affect quite frankly, the most vulnerable members of a community. So I'm wondering if that's the case here as well. So I'm, I'm going to go with yes and no on that one. Um, but, but let me start with no first. So um, the, in the city of Phoenix, the, the major cities um, operate uh, their own water utilities. And um, even very poor people have access to the community water system, right? Um, and Phoenix in particular does not shut people off of water service for non-payment. So um, they will restrict the flow that is delivered to a house, but they will not shut people off. And that's, of course, to support, you know, public health and and quality of life. But um, for that reason, you know, even very poor people maintain access to the community water system. But I, I will say yes, because one of the things that Phoenix does is it charges more for water in the summer than in the winter. And that's intentional. Um, The idea behind charging more for water in the summer is that it sends a direct signal about the scarcity of the resource. It discourages people from maintaining lawns or or really lush landscaping. Um, Because if you want to have a lawn in Phoenix, it needs a lot of water in the summer. So if you charge more for water in the summer, you know, people get a really high bill and and decide they'd, they'd rather have desert landscaping. But that is an issue for the more vulnerable and, and for the more disadvantaged in our communities because um, trees and, and grass and, and lusher landscapes can mitigate the impacts of extreme heat. And so we 
through signaling the scarcity of the resource, we also have made um, water for cooling purposes more expensive. And, and that, that probably does have a disproportionate impact. This is really interesting that you've, you've brought up pricing. And of course, as an economist, I'm sure you think about pricing scarce resources a lot. Are there other pricing structures in place that represent either the current status of water scarcity or looking ahead? You know, to what extent could you anticipate changing prices based on less water in the future? That's a very speculative question, but I'm curious about your thoughts on pricing in general. Sure. Let me first say just broadly that um, pricing water to reflect its scarcity in the desert Southwest is, of course, an incredibly important management strategy, right? Um, And we find that when you price for scarcity, people, for the most part, do make reasonable decisions and and decrease their water use. So um, an example of that is that we used to have these enormous uh, summer peaks before we started seasonal pricing. And if you look at a chart of how um, the peaks have declined over time, you can see that that pricing signal has been extremely effective. But yes, to your question, in the future, we would anticipate um, even greater rate increases because of scarcity on the Colorado River. So um, as there's less water available off the Colorado River um, for importation into central Arizona, that will have a direct impact on the cost of water that um, the cities and and private water companies are delivering to customers. So yeah, we we do anticipate that. um, But I think that the more important determinant of the cost of water really has to do with infrastructure because of course, the the delivery of safe, clean water to every single home and business in a community is among the most expensive of human undertakings. It's a huge capital expense, and we really need to continually reinvest in that infrastructure as it ages. So um, water scarcity is a big part of that, but I also think there's just a huge need to invest in aging infrastructure as well. Hmm. Interesting. Was any is any of that water infrastructure uh, covered by recent legislation? Is there actually federal funding available to kind of either maintain or revitalize any water infrastructure? Certainly, we've talked a lot about energy infrastructure, but I'm curious. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Um, but I, I but I will say that you know it honestly it is great and um, never say no to federal money, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what the need is out there and. You know, I believe it's really important that communities and and the ratepayers within those communities support the water system because fundamentally, no one's going to care more about your water system than those who rely on it. And and so I I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I promised at the outset that um, this is not a doom and gloom story. There are lots of strategies that that Phoenix has been employing. You've already referenced a few of them, and I, I definitely want to get to that in just a second. But um, but before that, one last kind of stage setting question, and I would welcome any storytelling that you'd like to bring to your answer. <laughs> but I wanted to ask whether in your recollection, was there kind of a, a seminal moment or an event or anything that you can recall in Phoenix where, where the folks there really realized wow, the trajectory of our water use has to change. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't recall it directly because I'm not quite old enough to, but I, I really think that came about in the late 1970s and, and early 1980s. 
during that time, um, Arizona was um, doing its best to import Colorado River water into central Arizona to support agriculture and, and cities and tribes. And um, there were a, a, there was a lot of discussion about um, the depletion of groundwater resources during that time. Central Arizona is really blessed to have very vast, very productive aquifers. And um, the federal government was concerned about importing Colorado River water into the state and then allowing um, the mining of, of uh, fossil groundwater to continue. And so there was a lot of community conversation about how to manage groundwater for the future, how to manage Colorado River water for the future, and um, what came out of that was the state's 1980 Groundwater Management Act. Uh, it's still to this day the most progressive uh, groundwater legislation that I can find anywhere in the country, if not the world. Um, it includes mandatory water conservation requirements that the cities have to meet. Uh, it basically disallows the use of mined groundwater for um, subdividing land and growing. So growth has to occur on renewable water supplies. Um, so it, it really accomplished quite a lot. And I think that at that point, the, you know, the, the culture began changing and, and people began understanding that we we're just going to have to manage our resources differently. What's interesting about that to me is that that, you know, the 1980s is quite a long time ago now. You know, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, other cities of the desert Southwest have gotten a lot of good media attention more recently because of things that, you know, they've started to do. And what's ironic to me about that is that many of these things are um, strategies that Phoenix has been pursuing for mm. decades. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, too, to me, you know, that the 80s, I think, certainly climate change was part of a was part of a discussion. I won't say that it had, wasn't discussed in any circles, but it wasn't nearly as discussed as it is now. So when when I'm framing this in, in the context of you know climate impacts and water availability, Phoenix was kind of way ahead of the curve. And so perhaps it's better positioned now in many ways. It's interesting you say that because yeah, I, you know we didn't have the term climate change per se back then. But in in an odd sense, climate change matters less to us here in Phoenix because guess what? It's always hot and dry, right? It has always been hot and dry in Phoenix. It will only ever be hot and dry in Phoenix. And, um, it, you know, it's a condition for which you can plan methodically, right? Unlike other natural disasters, which are stochastic in nature, you know that hot and dry is something that you can plan for. And, and that's what we do. Um, we, we plan very carefully and very thoughtfully to overcome it. Hmm. Interesting. I can't wait to talk about the transferability of some of these lessons. But but first, I want to make sure I want to make sure to give you a chance to talk through some of the some of the strategies. You know, you've mentioned some of them, but um, as much detail as you'd like to share with us about just the ways that the city employed um, policies, uh, behavioral nudges to really make reductions over the years possible. And and I should also note that my understanding is that there has, in fact, been a pretty dramatic change in water use since that, you know, period that we were just talking about. So, you know, if there's anything you'd like to share about trends, too, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. So, well, well let's start with um, reclamation and reuse of reclaimed water. Um, that is something that we pioneered here in central Arizona and in fact, most of our reclaimed water feeds the Palo Verde nuclear power plant um, for its cooling towers. 
And uh, the Palo Verde nuclear power plant is the only nuclear power plant in the world that is not located on a major body of water. And it is here out in the desert, um, providing the benefit it does to our communities because of that reclaimed water. Um, but we also use reclaimed water, of course, for golf courses and schools and parks and, and cemeteries and, and other turf facilities. We long understood that every drop of water in the desert is precious. I think also, uh, you know, like I said, through the 1980 Groundwater Management Act, we did a, a pretty good job. Um, you know, the, the law, like others, has its loopholes. We did a pretty good job of protecting those um, fossil groundwater reserves for future generations. That will be tested um, now that there will be less Colorado River water available for importation. The other thing is that um, we really set about settling our disputes about water. And I think most economists will appreciate this. You cannot expect people to invest in your economy if there is not absolute certainty about the water supply that's available um, in a desert, right? So there was a lot of uncertainty here in Arizona because of um, competing claims among um, the Native Americans, the irrigation districts, the cities, the mines, the power companies, basically everybody. And we spent decades uh, trying to resolve those disputes. And for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, have been relatively successful. And that, that does provide that certainty for investment in our, our water supplies. And then last, as you mentioned, um, yeah, you know, we've really tried to focus not just on water conservation, but really more on using water wisely. On changing the culture so that people understand that if you're going to live out here in the middle of the desert, you're going to have to live a little differently than what you might be used to. And I think that long-term look is important because, you know, flash in the pan things that get a lot of media, you know, that's great, but they can also ultimately confuse or frustrate customers. Um, you know, if you impose restrictions one day or one season or one year and then lift them later, it sends a signal to customers that sometimes water wasting is okay, right? And <laughs> right. we would rather send the signal that like, no, you're just going to have to live differently if you're going to live out here. Huh. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, you noted in an article that was I, I came across that was published by the Yale School of the Environment that folks in Arizona, quote, know it's a desert and we plan accordingly, right? And that's just that just encapsulates it so well. And we've talked about that, about how Phoenix sort of had to be planning for drought, for water scarcity. Let me put it that way. Um, maybe long before other cities. And I just I thought that was a really interesting point. And I feel like now we're getting at the heart of this question of kind of transferability of adaptation and resiliency lessons between places. Because, you know, I can imagine that as perhaps other places in the country are getting hotter and drier in the face of changing climate conditions, there could potentially be a lot to learn from a place that's been kind of figuring it out for a while. Um, but I don't know that that's really the case. Um, I'd, I'd love to ground truth that with you. Sort of, um, can jurisdictions learn from each other? Did you learn things from other jurisdictions? And, and how much are these really kind of local and specific decisions that have to be made versus people in, say, Atlanta or Denver could really learn from what Phoenix has been doing for a while and, and plan ahead? You know, it, it's kind of both, right? I mean, water is very, very local. Um, it, it's very political. 
Um, it depends very much on the different water supplies that are available, the, the state of the infrastructure, all these things that tend to be extremely local. Um, and, and for that reason, a lot of Phoenix's strategies have for the most part been, you know, homegrown. But I think when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, a lot of these things are very transferable, right? Have a really great rate structure um, that reflects the scarcity of the resource, but maintains affordability for poor people and some measure of, you know, financial stability for the utility, right? Don't let your infrastructure go to pot. Right. Um, because once you get behind, it's really, really difficult to catch back up. And that's a huge burden. Right. But yeah, you know, settling disputes, creating that environment of certainty for investment, um, reclaiming water, um, helping people to understand that, you know, they need to use water wisely. I think all those things are very transferable. But ultimately, I think the thing that has really helped Phoenix is that the water managers here have this attitude that we are in the trenches, that we will always be in the trenches, right? We will always need to work harder, innovate more, collaborate on different levels, do better, right? That That is very clear because our condition of hot and dry is perpetual. We never had the luxury of taking water for granted. And I think that has ironically been a, a benefit to us. And I think other cities, you know, they may discover that they no longer have that luxury either. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to hear from a place that has, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, piloted a number of things that other places may eventually, you know, by necessity have to have to start employing, um, but knowing that they work, right? I'm Again, I, I want to keep us focused on the successes, which I think we've been doing a good job of doing. So, Catherine, I just want to thank you again. This conversation has been a really great contribution to our Climate Hits Home series. And I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Uh, that is very kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me close um, with our closing feature, Top of the Stack. And I would welcome your recommendations for our listeners. Okay. Well, I just finished reading uh, Kurlansky's book on fly fishing and it was super fun. So I would definitely recommend that. But what I'm reading right now, the top of my stack is a very um, interesting book I just found. It's called Khrushchev Remembers. And it is um, a translation of, of Khrushchev's um, memoirs and notes and, and things like that by um, Strobe Talbot. Uh, who had the who had the audacity to uh, you know organize and translate all this stuff? It's fascinating. I, I am not a student of uh, Russian history by any means, but it is uh, it is a fascinating book. Highly recommend. Is it particularly fascinating given the moment that we're in right now? Too does it shed any light on you know is there kind of a through line between that period of U.S. Russia relations and now? You know what? I, I'm only 50 pages in, so I don't know. But yeah, but I'm going to say yes. And one thing I did not know is that Khrushchev was from uh, the Donbass region. So there's a parallel for you. Yeah. Well, I am 100% not qualified to host a podcast on political events. And so <laughs> I will probably stop asking questions right there. But that's such a good recommendation. I always enjoy it when our guests really kind of expand the horizons of what our listeners might be interested in. So that is a great top of the stack. Well, Catherine, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Resources Radio. 
a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.